Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how Sarah was the beautiful wife of Abraham and how God intervened to protect them in Egypt from Abraham's perfect plans. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. All right, so if you turn uh, to uh, Genesis chapter 12 in uh, verse 8, then we'll, we'll go ahead and start as we, uh, as we open God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you, Lord, because we need you. We need to be taught by you, led by you, guided by you. And so, therefore, we come to you to open your word. And we know, Lord, that, that uh, without the Spirit of God as our teacher, that we'll just be muddling about. So, Lord, we pray, Spirit of God, our teacher be, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Genesis chapter 12. And uh, follow along here as I begin reading in verse 8. And we're going to get a view here of uh, Abraham in this time of his life. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, which means house of of God, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the east, or seawards, sorry, on the west, or seawards and Ai, which means heaps, on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham, Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south, and there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray, that thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her, and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep or small cattle, and oxen, and he asses, and men servants, and maid servants, and she asses, and camels, and the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister, so that I might have taken her to me to wife? Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her, and go thy way." And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away, and his wife, and all that he had. Okay, now, let's start at verse 8. We come now to verse 8, which says about Abram, it says Abram, I'm going to call him Abraham, because that's the way I think about him anyway. Um, He removed from thence. That's a very interesting word to describe Abram as he traveled. That's the word that's used here, that God uses as he traveled. It's the word translated removed. Hebrew root word, atak. It's the first time it's used in the Bible here. It's used to describe Abraham on the move. And now to translate the word atak as remove, that's a good, it's a good choice because the word means remove in the sense of transcribe or going from one place to another place. As a matter of fact, there's another place where this word is used and it's actually used meaning transcribe in Proverbs 21, 25, 1, where it says, these are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. So the men of Hezekiah, 
king of Judah, they attack or they copied or they transcribed those Proverbs. And that's the picture behind the word attack here. First time it's used, it's used in the context here of Abram moving. So it's the picture of the men of Hezekiah transcribing the Proverbs from this piece of paper or whatever they wrote on. Anyway, from this piece to that piece. So literally, verse 8 could read, Abram attack or he transcribed himself, or it's good, removed himself. So God told Abraham to leave, and Abraham obeyed God by attack, by removing himself. And when Abraham obeyed God, he attack or removed himself from his country or his friends. And then Abraham attacked or removed himself from his kindred or his roots. And then Abraham attacked or removed himself from his father's house or his family. So when we read in verse 8 that Abraham attacked or removed himself from his country, kindred, and father's house, we see that Abraham is making a statement. And so what is the statement that Abraham is making by his attack or removing himself from his country, kindred, and father's house? By removing himself from his country, Abraham was saying, I can be parted from my country and my friends, but not from God. By removing himself from his kindred, Abraham was saying, I can be separated or parted from my kindred or my roots, but not from God. By removing himself from his father's house, Abraham was saying, I can be parted or separated from my father's house or family, but not from God. You remember, that was the description of Joseph. He was the one who was separated from his father's house. So by removing himself, by Abraham removing himself from his country, his kindred, his family, Abraham was saying the words of this hymn, Jesus engrave it on my heart, that thou the one thing needful art. I could from all things parted be, country, kindred, father's house, but never, never, Lord, from thee. And for any Jewish person who contemplates receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as God and Savior, more often than not, he'll find himself in Abraham's position, right there, the same position, and the challenge will be, is he willing to attack, remove himself from his Jewish friends or country, from his Jewish roots or kindred, from his Jewish family or father's house? But the word attack or removing for Abraham, that wasn't easy for Abraham. Those were Abraham's friends. Those were Abraham's roots. Those were Abraham's family. Abraham was not a tin man with no heart from the Wizard of Oz. He felt this sadness. He felt this emptiness. He felt this hollow feeling inside of him. And where is he? What does he do? He pitches his tent in verse 8. He finds a place. He's not in a city, but he's outside. He's between two cities. And, um, and his, his flocks, they need pasture. They need to feed. So he, he takes care of these things. And then he thinks of the need of his soul the second time as we see him doing this. He's left the plain of Moray in verse 6, where, you remember, he built his first altar to God. And now right after Abraham has set up his tent, we see Abraham again, so characteristic of him, going about to establish as his first priority the worship of God, and he builds this altar to God. Now, Abraham knew that with the feeling of his loss, of this loss of his country and his kindred and his family, that if he didn't take time to spend time with God, 
that he would just be swallowed up or sunk into discouragement. And so in building this altar, we see that Abraham is turning himself to God. That's the wonderful thing about Abraham that we see him doing. He was a man of like passions like we are. He felt depression. He felt hollowness in his soul, in his heart. He felt emptiness. He felt fear, as we'll see when he gets down to Egypt. He felt all of these things, but he shows us what to do about it. Not just to sit in the depression, not just to sit in the, in the discouragement, but to build an altar to God. That's Abram's remedy for the problems. And then he goes on, and so what does he do when he builds an altar to God? In verse 8, it says, what does it say he did when he built the altar to God? What does it say? He calls upon the name of the Lord. So what does that mean? He pulls out his address book. You see, it's in L for Lord. What's his name? <laughs> he doesn't do that. <laughs> he calls upon the name of the Lord. He says, so that's something that we have never seen Abram do before. Not to say he hasn't done it before, but it hasn't been called out to us. Who was the first one who called on the name of the Lord before we saw? Genesis 4. Yeah. Take a guess. Okay. So, Okay, Enoch, right? Then was born Enoch, and then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So this is not the first time we've seen this term, calling on the name of the Lord. It's the second time. <laughs> so that's the great thing about when you study Genesis, you can say, this is the first time. Of course it's the first time. It's the first book, but anyway. But this is a very important phrase, not just something to be passed over and to say, well, you know, whatever he did, he called on the name of the Lord. No, it's a very important thing that Abraham did when he called on the name of the Lord. So we gotta, we got to hunker down here and ask the question, what does it mean when Abraham called on the name of the Lord? What does it mean when we call on the name of the Lord? That's the question. Well, here's the, here's the thing. The name of the Lord, which is given in several places in the Scripture, is always associated with a need that we have. And the name of God is always associated with the name that we have. For example, you just take the name that we're the most familiar with, the name of the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, Matthew one twenty one. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Right, we're in Matthew one twenty one. That's the name. That's the meaning of the name, Jesus. Jesus means that he was going to save his people from their sins. means God saves. Well, God saves from what? God saves from sins. And he is going to save. God saves. He is going to save his people from his sins. God is going to save his people from their sins by becoming a man. That's all tied up in the name of Jesus. In other words, Jesus means that he as God became a man to save from people from their sins. What's Christ? Christ means Messiah or sent one from God. So by putting the two names together of Jesus Christ, we understand that the meaning of Jesus Christ is the one who God sent to save us from our sins. That name of the Lord is for our need. We're the ones that have sins. We're the ones who are sinners. We need to be saved from our sins. So we call on the name of Jesus Christ when we need to be saved from our sins by the one who has sent us. And by the way, we don't just need to be saved from our sins at the time we're saved. We have lots of sins. So we have always a time coming to sin. So we always need to be saved. So we always call on the name 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's name, one of God's names, is Jesus Christ, the one God sent to save us from our sins. When we need to find in God deliverance from our sins, salvation from our sins, because we're, we're afraid, for one thing, to fall into the hands of an angry God, then we call in the name of God as Jesus Christ. That's a precious name to us because it's the name that meets the need of our salvation from sins. And we call on that name for that need. Now, another name for God is in 2 Corinthians 1.3, where it says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. That's a name. The God of all comfort. That's a name for God, the God of all comfort. When we need to find in God, find in God comfort because we're distressed, because we're depressed, then we call on that name of God, the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort is precious to us. It's a precious name for us when we need comfort. Now Moses taught the Jewish people names for God. He taught them so that they could do this this practice here. He taught them in several places. He taught them in Deuteronomy 32.4 where he said this about God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth. And without iniquity, just and right is he. So Moses told Israel that one name for God is God the rock. You can call him that. That's his name, God the rock. When we need to find in God stability. Why? Because we're unstable. Then we call on the name of God as God the rock. That's a precious name to us when we need stability. Moses told that Israel that also another name for God is the God of truth, the God of truth. When we need in God freedom from lies and deceptions, then we call on the name of God as the God of truth. The God of truth is a precious name to us when we need freedom from lies and deceptions that arise right out of our own heart, as it says in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So there's a pattern here. The pattern is that our need drives us to the different names of God, as those names express how God meets our different needs. That's why when God proclaimed some different names, you might want to turn to it, Exodus 34, Verse 5, Exodus 34, 5, is a place where God proclaimed his name, his different names. And when you look at these verses, Exodus 34, 5 through 7, you'll see and hear different names for God linked to different needs that we have. Dad, today you talked about Genesis 12, 8, where it says that Abraham built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. What does calling on the name of the Lord mean to us? Well, you know, David, I'm glad you asked that question because it's very significant in uh, Genesis 12, 8, at the end there, that says that Abraham built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Those are, that's a very, very important addition there. He called on the name of the Lord. And the meaning of that part of that verse came out to me on a flight that I one time had from San Diego, I think it was to New York City. And I sat down in my seat, and next to me was this very large black man. And so we, I was making conversation, and I said, you know, it's a beautiful day that the Lord has made. And he was a big man. And so what happened was that 
he leaned over the seat over me. He seemed to just tower over me like a like a giant branch of a tree just overshadowing me. It seemed that way. And he said to me in his deep voice, and who might that Lord be? <laughs> and it was a little bit, I was a little afraid. And so I felt like a mouse. So I just sort of squeaked out the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, all right now. And then we shook hands. He was a precious believer. We had a wonderful time of fellowship. But I never forgot that because it was as if the Lord was speaking to that man. And he, the Lord was saying to me, if you know who God is, then say so. It's like David said in the Psalms, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Don't just use a nebulous term like God. Everybody says God, oh my God, or, or you know, thank God, or, or Lord. But because nobody knows who you're talking about. But it's as if every time you would be tempted to say that, and every time I would be tempted to say God or Lord, I can just picture again this dear Christian leaning over me and saying, and who might that Lord be? Just like the Lord would say that. So it's very, very important to say the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what conversion is. It's to confess Jesus as Lord. That's why Romans 10.9 is so important where it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's a sequence there. If, that means you don't have to, but if you do, if any person, if any lost person chooses to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, then God saves him. See, first confess him as Lord, then God saves him. That's not to be confused with another part in Scripture that says that only by the Spirit of God can a person confess him as Lord. That's talking about something totally different in a different context. This is before a person is saved. He confesses Jesus as Lord, then he's saved, then he gets the Spirit of God. But that is the point of conversion there. When a person confesses that Jesus is God, that we are talking about Jesus as God, not Jesus as a man. That was what that's how he is described in Isaiah 53, how the Jewish people are for the most part, where it says they despise and reject him. And he is a man of sorrow. See, they're despising and rejecting a man. But what makes the whole point of repentance, the whole turnabout, is to no longer see he was a man, no longer see that he was just a good man, no longer to just to see that he was a good teacher, a man as a teacher, no longer to just see that he was a good man, a prophet. Oh, no. But now it's to see him all together in a different light. He's God. And that's what it means to confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Romans 10 and 9, as the chorus says, Romans 10 and 9 is a favorite verse of mine. Confessing Christ as Lord, I am saved by grace divine. These little words of promise in golden letters shine, Romans 10 and 9. See, she got it when she wrote that poem. She said it's a favorite verse because it's confessing Christ as Lord. It's confessing Jesus as Lord. 
That was the point of Paul's conversion, when he confessed Jesus as Lord. He was recounting his conversion in Acts 22, verses 7 and 8. And he says, I fell into the ground, heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. It's interesting that the Lord Jesus did not say, I am the Lord Jesus, I or I am God Jesus. He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. See, because he had already, Paul had already acknowledged that he was talking to God, because that's why he said, who art thou, Lord? And then he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. So in other words, the point of Paul's conversion was when he believed that Jesus of Nazareth, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, was God, Almighty God, the great I Am, the Adonai, the creator of every man, that that one is Jesus of Nazareth. And so when he believed that, that's when he was converted. That's why it's so important to understand that that is the creed. That was the reason why there was only one creed of the early church. It was very simple. The creed of the early church were just three words. Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul meant. Speaking about the church, the gathering together, the ecclesia, the called out ones in 1 Corinthians 5, 4, when he spoke about that, he said, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, what he was saying there is that you gather together around the creed, around the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when that happens, then you are the church. The church is the invisible body of the Lord Jesus Christ who believes that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is God. He believes that Jesus is Lord. That's the church. And that's what we encourage the lost to do, to confess Jesus as Lord. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians 1-2, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place Call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. That's what makes the church. The church are are men and women who are in many, many denominations, but there's one characteristic of them. And if they are part of the true church, the true body of the Lord Jesus Christ, then those individuals will be calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what makes them part of the church. That's what makes them saved. That's what we preach. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, when he said, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. That's why, especially when I speak with Jewish people, I have got one goal when I speak to any Jewish person. 
I realize that my time may be short before the door slams in my face, either literally or figuratively. So before that happens, I want to plant one seed, one message, four words. That's all I want to do to plant four words. And those four words are, I want to say the words, the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not call him just Jesus because that can be misunderstood to mean that I only mean the man, Jesus. I don't call him Jesus Christ because, again, that can be misunderstood to mean the man, Jesus Christ. I don't call him Christ because that could be misunderstood that I only mean that the man, Christ. But I call him the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, or Uh, sometimes, very rarely, the Lord Christ. So whatever term I use, I say the Lord Jesus Christ because the message that's being sent is that he is God. Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is God. Christ is God. And that's the message that we preach. Thank you for joining us today. Now this month, Tom Cantor's offering his latest book called Whosoever Will versus Fatalism. Now, this book will help you to scripturally answer the questions of what is fatalistic Calvinism? It also answers many other questions like who can resist God's will? What are chosen and changed children? Did God predestinate people to die and go to hell? This book shows how we are all faced with a personal crisis of obedience, just as Joseph and Eve both faced crises of obedience. Now, this book examines the character of God and his promises and compares them with the teachings of fatalistic Calvinism and provokes us with the question, what if God misled? Now, if you'd like a copy of this book, call us today at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. or go to friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org to order online. Thanks for listening.